0: Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including life groups, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Rob Basham. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. You'll notice on the stage that there is a rose and roses here at Salem Alliance signify new life in Christ. And last week, Mackenzie decided to put her faith in Jesus and pound a ribbon on the cross. Would you celebrate that with us today? Growing up, like most children, I was not a huge fan of doing yard work. I know, I hope I'm like most of you, especially when it was not just a clear assignment that was given to me, but was kind of a group project where my dad would be out there with my brother and my sister, and we all collectively are attempting to rake the leaves. And I often remember my dad saying, don't just stand there, do something, right? In those little moments where he would catch you taking a break. And I find myself using that same phrase on my children when we're doing kind of group chores and trying to get the kitchen together, what are you doing? Don't just stand there, do something. It's a common phrase that we use here in the U.S. because we are a culture that likes to accomplish. We are in a a culture that likes to get stuff done, and we want to pass on that work ethic that we are so proud of. And yet, what I want to talk to us about today is actually quite the opposite. I think that sometimes in our culture, everything has to have such a clear purpose that sometimes we miss out on just being present. Just being there. Sometimes it's okay to just stand there. Today we're talking about tangible presence, and we're in week two of our series, Tangible Peace, Presence, and Power, and every, every fall we just kind of reset and we remind each other why we gather as a church. And today, I want to do that again. I want to remind us of our, our vision, our mission, and our values. Our, our vision is to see Salem live into its name and be a city at peace. And we do this by just following our mission. We are on mission together. Our mission is that we exist to exalt Jesus Christ, become his fully devoted followers, and share his grace and truth with all people. We do this and stay within our values as a church. We want to just encourage one another to do life with Jesus, life together and then do life on mission, reaching out. We believe very clearly that we are a church that is to engage with our culture. We want to bless, we want to love, and we want to bring peace to our culture. We don't want to create a commune away from what is happening outside of these walls. We believe that we, the church, have been commissioned to be the church everywhere that we step, and that we have the privilege to bring the peace and the presence and the power of Jesus to our spheres of influence. It's in this series that I'm trying to help us see tangibly how we each are commissioned to do this and what that looks like today i want to define tangible presence as this simply being there listening attentively showing empathy offering a caring or a non-judgmental presence why are we just do something why are you standing there We're flipping that a little bit on its head today and saying it is okay sometimes to just be presence. It doesn't mean that we always have to be advocating or providing provision or wise counsel. Sometimes just being there, just showing up is enough. One of the tangible ways that we do this at Salem Alliance is we do these airport pickups. And so every, every year, a number of refugees enter into Salem. This year, over 300 refugees will be calling Salem their new home. And we at Salem Alliance get to partner with Salem for Refugees. And at this point, we have picked up every single new neighbor. Every refugee that has arrived, our church has had the privilege of welcoming them at PDX. We welcome them with signs and with balloons and a smile, and we say we're glad that you are here. Welcome to our city that is becoming a city of peace. And it is our hope that in that moment of exhaustion, many of them have never flown on a plane before and they've traveled for hours and there's this mixture of trepidation and hope, of confusion of the unknown. But it is our hope that each of these individuals and families experience just a little bit of comfort and a sense of belonging when they cross the line and come out. For our volunteers that engage in this, first, thank you. But second, for them, it means driving to PDX. It means that they're likely going to hit traffic around Wilsonville and be stuck there for a little while. It means that when they get there, they don't just pick people up, but they pay for parking and they go inside and they're praying that the flight is not late. And they do all of this for a three to five minute engagement where what they do literally is smile, hold balloons and a sign, and maybe say, we're glad you're here in a language that the person that's arriving may or may not comprehend. They are not starting an orientation of what it means to adjust to American culture. They are not teaching them how how to ride our city buses. They are not convincing them that it's cheaper to shop at Winco than it is at Safeway. (laughs) They are simply smiling and saying, we're glad you're here. It's tangible presence, and we're called to bring that presence, the Spirit of God within us, everywhere that we go. This morning, I want us to look at a story found in the Gospel of John. It's a familiar one, and it's one where Jesus is again confusing his disciples. He encounters this woman at the well. And in this story, I want for us to see how Jesus models being a tangible presence. The story is found in John 4. You can turn there with me in your scripture on your Bible app if you would like. Or you can just close your eyes and listen to it being read. I'm actually going to be starting not in verse 1, but in verse 6. And today, it's a longer passage of scripture. But there's so much going on that I just feel it's important for us to take a look at it. John chapter 4, starting in verse 6. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Please give me a drink.' He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised because Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, "'You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink?' Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you are greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again it becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them giving them eternal life please sir the woman said give me this water then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water go and get your husband Jesus told her I don't have a husband, the woman replied, and Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're currently living with. You certainly have spoken the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Skipping down to verse 39, the disciples have returned. They're curious why Jesus is talking to this woman. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed there for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of our world. This is the word of the Lord. There's so much happening in this story and there's so many ways that you can go with a text like this. There's incredible deep theology about salvation and the person of Jesus and just the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. But where I want to focus today is on Jesus' theology of mission, on his philosophy of ministry. I believe that he is revealing some powerful things to us that cause us to ask some questions of how we might need to realign how we are going on mission. Understanding the culture and the context can teach us a lot about Jesus and how he operated, where he chose to spend his time, and the posture that he took in engaging with the culture around him. The first thing I want to concentrate is on where Jesus did choose to be present, where he chose to be present. You see, if you use this as your lens as you read through the Gospels, I think you will be awakened to some things. Jesus did not spend the majority of his hours in strategic city of Jerusalem. He did not. He spent much time in the villages, in the lesser known areas, walking with his group of disciples. And who did he hang out with? He didn't spend as much time with the religious elite in the temples as he did with the average people. With the least of these that were around in fact he spent time with Zacchaeus this tax collector and he spent time with this Samaritan woman at the well and he spent time on the shores of Galilee with these very ordinary fishermen and it's important for us to know that when Jesus entered the wedding parties and when he entered these places he was not drawn to the influential and the powerful and the dignified but the least of these and the historical context here is also important because there's this great animosity between the samaritans and the jews the jews look down on the samaritans in fact jesus is kind of just doing something that most rabbis would not by going actually through samaria they look down on them because they believe that they have an unclean lineage, that their bloodline has been corrupted through inner marriage. And so when they claim that Jacob is their father, the Jews scoff at that viewpoint. They will not tolerate that. And then there's this difference of where the sacred space is. Where does God dwell? Is it on Mount Jerusalem, as the Samaritans say, or is it in the, in the temple in there in Jerusalem. In fact, this, I, this conflict over the sacred space has caused a division, and that division has actually caused hatred to enter in. We know from church history and, and the scholars of the Old Testament that the Samaritans actually at one point in an act of revenge against something that the Jews had done to them, actually dig up dead body bones and desecrate the temple on the night before a big festival. And so there's this animosity between these groups, and yet Jesus here isn't settling the argument about whether the proper place of worship is Mount Jerusalem or Jerusalem. No, again, he's redefining something. He's actually saying sacred space where the presence of God is is no longer going to be geographically limited. He's saying that that's not the case anymore. It's where people worship in spirit and truth. It's where spirit-empowered people actually step the glory of God is no longer limited or hid in a temple. No, when Jesus dies on the cross, the temple curtain is ripped and the glory of God is revealed. And that at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls upon us, we now become mobile temples that take his peace and his power and his presence everywhere that we step. And here Jesus is redefining even sacred space. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just about where presence happens. It's also how he demonstrates this posture of what on being on mission should be. This is where I want to just camp for a moment. You see, the church, especially the Western church, has done a lot of good with the influence and the power and the resources that we have been blessed with. We have created schools. We have taken care of the poor and the unsheltered all around the world. We have proclaimed Jesus as king. We have brought freedom to those that are suffering with addiction and patterns of thinking. This is amazing. And this is good. And this is right. I mean, we believe that we should have this mentality of let's correct things. Let's fix things. world. I mean, Jesus comes and inaugurates the kingdom of God, and he says, we're going to return things to the way they were intended to be. And yet, at times, the church's posture is one of, we have all the answers, we have the right interpretations, and you need it. And with this, our helping, our declarations, and our responses can sometimes turn into fixing, correcting, constituting, and taking over. And the posture that Jesus demonstrates is different than that. Yes, we want to see flourishing, but we want to see it done in a way that doesn't involve coercion, but in a way that sees the kingdom of God move forward. This is most evident in times where those from from the developed world enter into the global south and are sent as international workers or missionaries, and at times, if they are not trained well, they think that they are going to transform that culture with all the answers, and not only are they bringing a spiritual truth, but they're going to bring development, and so with their need assessments, they're actually looking down on the people and coercing change. And Jesus' theology of mission doesn't align with that posture. Here in John 4, we see a beautiful theology of mission. You see, his presence, it begins with humility. It releases reciprocity, and it ascribes dignity. It begins with humility. It releases reciprocity, and it ascribes dignity. Here we have this woman, an outcast from her own people. She's present at the well at noon. That's an awkward time to be there in the heat of the day. Most would come early in the morning when it's still cool in a group, or they would come in the evening as the sun is setting. In my upbringing, this story was always told with this underlying backdrop, that here Jesus is confronting this woman's sin and her immorality, for she has been divorced five times and now is living with something that someone she's not married to, and maybe there's an aspect of that that is true, but as I study the cultural context and even just consult other great theologians, I'm not so sure how accurate that is. I definitely don't feel that's the purpose of this story. I mean, if we're to step back for a second, Jesus, known as a friend of sinners, which I love, what we have to also understand is though he walks life with people that are sinners, he wants to see them flourish. And so at some point, he gently also calls them to repentance. Don't miss that. He calls people to repentance all the time. But here in this story, we don't have a record of that. And the scenario for this woman could be many. Might she be widowed, in which case her, her husband's brother, the one that passed, would have to take her on? And maybe that didn't go well, and so she is divorced from that, understandably, or maybe she's struggling with infertility. And so in this culture, where part of her just purpose is to produce children for this man who is providing protection, who is providing and for her, if she can't do that, she would likely be discarded and divorced. Where then she finds another man who is willing to take a chance on her. And again, if she can't produce a child, she is likely discarded and divorced. And suddenly the the list of suitors who would be willing to protect her and take her in and marry her continues to get smaller. To the point that the man that she's with now won't even give her the dignity of marrying her. As the biblical scholar Kenneth Bailey concludes, the fact that this woman has had five husbands and now is with a man who wasn't her husband was more of an indictment on the unjust divorce practices of her time than any fault of the woman's. The scandalous one here, I would say, is more Jesus than this woman because in this encounter, he is turning over the way things had become in this culture and he's entering in and offering a new path. If we jump back into this story, here Jesus has taken the shortcut. He finds himself in Samaria and he has sent his disciples off into the city to get food. And he is just hanging out at this well. But the fascinating thing is, he doesn't have a jar or a water bottle with him. Why not? You know, and I don't know the deal. I haven't studied the historical context to know enough about the water bottles and in Jesus's day here in the first century of Palestine. And I don't know, maybe his disciples, they upgraded the water bottles and followed the trends like we do in our culture every three months. I don't know how it worked. Maybe his disciples started off with the Nalgene water bottle, but it became a bit too granola for the disciples. The natural move to the Contigo may have sufficed for a little while. (laughs) But Peter saw that the neighbor got a camelback, and he was envious. And so envy set in, and he got camelbacks for all of the disciples, and they started to give them away to those who were in need. And Mary saw that swell had come out with some cool new designs, so swells were the new deal for all of them when they went to the well. But they dented really easily. And so they had to get rid of them to get the more robust hydro flask. And the hydroflasts were a little bit bigger, so they could put more of these stickers from all the Palestinian villages <laughs> that they were going to. But the hydroflats could only keep the well water cool for about a day. And then they found Yeti And oh my goodness, it could keep things hot or cold for over a week. And so they were so excited and they got their Yetis when Simon the Zealot said, there's a new bottle that acts as a weapon as well. It's the Stanley bottle. (laughs) And some of you are so lost in my tangent right now that you don't understand what's going on. And some of you have had every single one of those water bottles. And you know exactly who you are. But seriously, I imagine that the disciples, historians tell us that what they actually traveled with were these little, thin, lightweight leather buckets. And the disciples likely were traveling with numerous ones. And yet Jesus is found at this well and sends his disciples away with all of the little buckets and water jars. Why? Why? I believe because Jesus is leading with humility. He's having to rely on someone else. He is in need of something that this woman has. He doesn't lead with this idea that my name is Jesus and I am the Messiah and I have this metaphorical water that will keep you from ever thirsting again. No, he leads with the words, please, can you give me a drink? He is in need. He asks for help. He leads with humility. Think about his first encounter with the apostle Peter. Peter comes in from fishing and Jesus says, hey, could I borrow your boat for a minute so that I can just go out a little bit so these people can hear me better? He starts with a request. Notice when Jesus commissions the 12 and the 72 I often have the privilege of commissioning people to go out on mission here on this stage, and I am always just very sure that I bless them as they serve people, that they will also receive from those people. But I stop short of commissioning the way Jesus does, who in Mark 6 says, take nothing for the journey except for a walking stick. You're not allowed to take food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allows them to wear sandals, but take no change of clothes. I've always thought that that's probably an act to help build their faith, but may it not be. Maybe it's that he just wants them to go in need so that they will encounter people and have to receive from them their hospitality, their protection. That's putting dignity on those people before they receive from the commissioned disciples the message of good news, healing in deliverance. Don't underestimate the power of humility. See, that humility is powerful because it releases reciprocity, and reciprocity, friends, is so powerful. I did a very deep dive, extensive study on the sense of belonging a few years ago, and the main thing that I learned is the power of reciprocity. Reciprocity is what creates community. Until both sides are able to receive from one another, community is not really community. Reciprocity keeps us from just being the fixers that have something to offer. It breaks this unintended Messiah complex. It's disarming. It impacts us because it allows us to grow as we receive and as we give. A few years ago, I was walking downtown with one of our young elders, and he had reached out and wanted to process some things. And I'll never forget, we were heading downtown, and we were standing in front of uh, Marcos's Taqueria here, and these two gentlemen come, and they confront us, and they want to start talking with us. And they are two men that were, at the time, homeless, and one of them had been drinking a little bit. Both of their words were slurred a little bit. And I was just kind of agitated, because we were in the midst of a pretty intense conversation, and yet my friend was totally focused on them he stopped everything he was doing and gave them full attention my posture demonstrated something different and i was kind and respectful yet wanting them to know we need to get out of here in fact it even started to rain a little bit surprise and we're standing there and he's just giving them all the attention for about seven minutes he's dialoguing with these two guys why i am agitated inside as a conclusion of the conversation, just the plane starts to land. One of the homeless gentlemen says, Hey, it's awesome to talk to you. And he doesn't ask for money. He says, Can I pray for you? And I'll never forget what my friend did because he said, Absolutely. And he got on his knees on the sidewalk and said, Please, feel free to lay your hands on me. What happened next? was slurred speech, some of which made no sense, turned into one of the most beautiful, spirit-empowered blessings I've ever heard in my life. And as my friend got up, and as we began to walk away, I began to weep with the conviction of the Holy Spirit because he got a blessing that I didn't because of my pride, for my inability to be interrupted, and for my judgments against these two men. Still, I still have to confess this. I'm a person that wants to accomplish. I don't like standing still. But I am more on the lookout to receive from all different types of people. I've received from some of you in this room that are walking through chronic illnesses or disabilities, and you've come to me for prayer, and yet I've been humbled by you by your persistence, by the way you live your life, the joy amidst the struggle, your brutal honesty, you're challenging my perspectives about the love and the perseverance of God. There's some in this room that are unsheltered, and you've come to me and, and prayed for me, and I've been influenced by your incredible generosity and sacrifice towards others when you have so little yourself. There's some in this room for whom English is your second language and you have prayed for me and you have taught me so much about patience and resilience and humility and you're adding your rich cultural heritage to us as a body and thank you. You see, we each have something to give and we each have the ability to receive. And when we do this, when we practice this reciprocity, it ascribes dignity and it ascribes worth to those that we interact with. This discourse of Jesus elevates the woman and it affirms her dignity. He's talking with her with the same truth that he talked about the chapter before with Nicodemus, a high-ranking Jewish leader. He doesn't give in to the cultural's hostility. He is beginning the process of tearing down the walls of hostility. In this case, they're based on ethnicity and gender because the truth is barriers diminish in the name of Jesus. But for Jesus, and may it be true for us, he isn't doing this just to be liked or to build an audience. For him, it is sincere and is authentic because he cares about this woman that has been made in the image of his father, and he cares about her identity. The author David Lowe summarizes this story this way. I love this quote. The story is not about immorality. It's about our identity. In the previous scene, Jesus was encountered by a male Jewish religious authority who could not comprehend who or what Jesus was. In this scene, he encounters the polar opposite. And precisely because she is at the other end of the power spectrum, she recognizes not just who Jesus is, but what he offers, dignity. Jesus invites her not to be defined by her circumstances and offers her an identity that lifts her above her tragedy. Church family, Jesus, his philosophy of ministry, so often it began with humility. It released reciprocity and it ascribed dignity. May ours as well. And notice the final outcome of this story because it's what I love. Ultimately, this encounter leads to the spreading of the message of who Jesus is. It spreads the gospel. And this woman is actually commissioned and is the first female preacher we see in scripture. She goes to her village, and her village responds. Her life was changed that day, and so were those of the entire village. And so the question for us this morning is, what does it look like to adapt our philosophy of ministry, our theology of mission to be in line with the way that Jesus operated? A couple of quick takeaways for you this morning. One, can I encourage you to engage humbly, to be less in a hurry to fix things or offer advice And just start listening. Just listen well. Be that non-anxious presence that creates calm and releases hope by just being there. Second, and it's similar, receive from unlikely people. Who are the people that are around you? Some of you do this so well already, but some of us, we need to ask Holy Spirit to just give us a nudge when we see people that have something to offer us that we just perceive as needy. You'll be surprised what you can receive from different people. And the final thing, would you let tangible presence mess with your schedule? You see, if you really do this and do it well, you're going to be late to some things because you're going to be interruptible. You're going to not just be satisfied with the wave or the nod at the neighbors, but you're going to go and have a conversation. You're going to allow the Holy Spirit to present opportunities. It means being front porch people. It means lingering at the water cooler if you don't have one of the cool bottles for a little longer. (laughs) It means getting out of your chair and going to the coworker's office to ask them the question instead of just sending the email. In doing so with a smile and a how you've been, I haven't seen you in a while. Church, may we find our modern day wells, our school pickups, our dog parks, our sporting events. May we be a tangible presence that starts with humility, releases reciprocity, and ascribes dignity and worth to those that we come in contact with. Let's pray. Jesus, we declare that you are such a good God. You are pursuing those that you have created in powerful, powerful ways, and for whatever reason, you choose to use us to do it. And so here we are, your people your church, ready to be on mission. Give us the courage to do so. Allow us to be interruptible. Holy Spirit, nudge us when you are doing a work. May we not miss it. We give you glory and praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.